0: Pond Pond, across the
1: Hello and welcome back to yet another episode of Across the Pond. It's a, an awkward episode number that we find ourselves on today, Barry, um, but I have no doubt it's going to be a good one uh, because you have had your barony, your bar one for a 20, the man who wants a 25 Indeed. hour work day. Um, and Indeed. of course, you have finally been able to go for a run around the hockey pitch. How's it going? Third time,
0: third time's the charm, Chad. The last two weeks have been uh, cancelled due to lightning, so it's really good to get a run around. But I was telling you off air, I am exhausted. And yep. so I was hobbling up the stairs and had to stop at a garage to give myself a bar one to give me some energy and some enthusiasm to get through this episode. And like you say, it's one of those amazing little pieces of energy that just turns you into a new man, Chad. And so I'm feeling ready to go <laughs> get, get stuck into a very good episode. How are you doing?
1: Yeah, I'm good. I'm I'm so jealous actually because I, I decided to go and buy myself a Mars bar the other day uh, to melt and throw over some, some ice cream because there's nothing quite like mm. bar one chocolate sauce, the proper stuff. Oh, yeah. Um but it just you know it just doesn't it just doesn't match up to to the good old bar one. So I'm I'm a little jealous, but other than that, good. Um also also have some blood flowing around in my in my blood. My fiance kind of forced me to get on the floor and do some exercise um but but other than that it's been a it's been a good productive day which is all we can really hope for leading on to our weekend uh but aside from all of that we've got so much to discuss from this past week it's
0: packed chad it's packed if i look at the notes there are so (laughs) many big stories and uh, i'm just dying to get into it chad so how about we we put the small talk away and let's dig into the (laughs) meat of the episode
1: let's do it (laughs) The week that was. The week that was, man, oh man, was it quite a week. And uh, there's a lot, there's a lot to get to. Um, but I think let's maybe just ease and ease our way into it, Barry. And let's just start off talking about the things that you and I love, uh, some some technology uh, development in the tech world. Uh, we've we've had some announcements coming through from uh, the, the giants that are Twitter and Spotify, respectively. Um, why don't you take us through the Twitter announcements that we've seen this past week? Because I think it's pretty interesting, especially when we start talking about, uh, obviously, you know, some of the developments over the, the last couple of years.
0: Yeah, so Twitter is very interesting because They've been this kind of the same product for years now. Like one of the major criticisms that they've faced over the last couple of years is that nothing must have changed. If you look back on the last five, six years, the only real change that happened was they went from 140 characters to 280 characters. And that was kind of the, the big product shift at that time. But beyond that, they haven't seen much innovation beyond their their lame attempts at these fleets, which are these stories that, that yeah. haven't really worked as so I think, I think they, they thought they would. Um, and so they faced a lot of criticism, but they've still remained very relevant in the space. And then out of nowhere, Chad, I don't know why they decided to do this, but they launched three new products at exactly the same time. So it's it's clearly a big step for them. It's clearly a big kind of, a statement they're making to the market and to shareholders saying that the Twitter of old is no more and they're going to start to innovate and try and push this product further And of course it, it, it comes on the back of Twitter being such a huge part of the global conversation So it really has become a key part of democracy We, we talk about all yeah. the Trump stuff back in the day We talk about all the, the, the stuff that happens on Twitter is really important too, to how the world functions and so any product developments is going to play a big role. So let's look at the three products briefly, Chad, and just talk you through them. The first one is what we chatted about in a couple episodes ago. is something called Spaces, and it's just Clubhouse. That's all it is. It's just Clubhouse on Twitter. They've copied it line for line. The idea is that you create these drop-in audio conversations, and you can have a stage and invite people up onto the stage and kind of have this impromptu immediate podcast in a way and i think this is very smart from twitter's perspective when we first chatted about clubhouse i said that this feels like a twitter feature so it kind of felt inevitable um but i've been amazed by how fast they've been able to build it Chad, and i think it's slowly starting to get rolled out i haven't seen any mine just yet but it's slowly starting to get rolled out to some beta users and i think in the next couple months they're going to try and compete with clubhouse
1: that 's fascinating uh, I mean you, you're completely right, you did mention that, and uh, you've you 've done some some pretty good predictions so far on, on the podcast. I must be honest. I mean, we were talking about the Tesla share price the other day, uh, <laughs> and it 's a prediction that you gave right on this podcast, uh, you know saying that it was about time that it was going to kind of a drop down again, but you 're right, uh, I think they acted pretty swiftly uh, given how well Clubhouse has uh, sort of taken off and uh, you know how quickly it's it 's growing. So in terms of that, that beta testing group, uh, like you said, you haven't kind of seen anything on your own feed just yet. How long do you think they're going to spend in beta? Because obviously we know uh, when it comes to bugs and making sure your product is sort of ready for market, it's important to get good testing going on. But of course they're also they've got this other race happening at the same time, and that is uh, to to try and not let Clubhouse take too far of a lead.
0: Yeah, it's a really difficult one, and you kind of nailed the trade-off. There's the competitive, the competitive analysis of trying to be the first mover and kind of gain whatever land grab you can. But also, if you have a bad experience on on a space or you, like it doesn't work the way you think it's going to work, you could never use a product again. You can kind of ignore it as a customer. Yep. And so you always you're trading that fine line. I have no doubt that the spaces team is working crazy hours right now trying to get things <laughs> on up, up and running. Um, so I don't know how much testing they're going to do. I think I think what, where Twitter can really do well is by just making very basic features to start with. Like you don't need to start with all the bells and whistles. If you can start with just basic, like smaller rooms, maybe give it a cap that keeps it to, to a, re- a manageable level, yep. then you can you can kind of test this pretty quickly. And where Twitter has a huge advantage is that the amount of bandwidth they have, because they're at a humongous scale, right? One of the biggest things that clubhouses, one of the biggest challenges clubhouses faced, is getting their hands on enough bandwidth, on enough yep. kind of computing power to run all of these conversations at the same time. Whereas Twitter is this ginormous corporation and they must have gazillions of servers, right, who can run these things. And so I think that they're in a good position there and they've got the built-in social graph. They don't have to get people onto their app and then start building a social network. They've got it all there for them. And so I would imagine it's sooner than we think, Chad. My guess would be in the next month or two at at the very very latest, Um, just because it's such a hot space right now that you kind of want to get in there as soon as you can.
1: Yeah. Yeah, completely agree. Um, And I mean, just in terms of those other two features, uh, you know, communities like Facebook groups, that's pretty much, Facebook groups is pretty much the only reason that I still use Facebook. If I'm completely honest, there are all of these wonderful communities, certainly in photography. Um, and, you know, when it comes to like local groups and communities and getting advice about certain things, um, that for me is such a great feature of Facebook. And uh, aside from that, we always talk about it being bloated. That's one of the reasons why I still use the app. So I think it's important that they've kind of made their move into into that space, too. Um, and then in terms of the the third one, which is uh, the super followers, the, the paid subscriptions. Uh, That's fascinating. Uh, You know, talk us through your thoughts on this, because obviously we've seen sort of the likes of Patreon and, uh, you know, I guess just supporting creators, uh, people who consume creators' contents are keen to get involved and sort of support their creators. So what what do you think about that, especially when it comes to text and having sort of paid text feed?
0: I'm surprised it's taken them this long. This really feels like the way they should have monetized much earlier, in my opinion. I think the reason they're being pushed by this is not just Patreon, it's it's also places like Substack, where Substack okay. is building this paid newsletter network, where amazing writers are kind of leaving the New York Times, leaving these big publications, and writing these email newsletters, which they put some of it behind a paywall. And they are building these, these groups of, of really fanatical fans who desperately want to read what these guys are writing, and are making really good like business decisions as a result. And then be able to build these niche audiences. On Twitter, there are there are certain players on Twitter that have such a such a, a land grab over the attention. If you think of guys like Elon Musk or Naval Ravikant or some of these big names on Twitter, they have these rabid rabid fan bases. And if you're a writer or a journalist or a content creator, and, and you most of your audiences on Twitter there's no real way to monetize that. You kind of have to send them yep. off the platform into to find some other products or some other services in order to monetize that at all. And so I think super followers makes a lot of sense. I've got no idea what kind of price points you would want to go at for this because there are just tweets at the end of the day, right? There's not yep. like... They're not huge articles, they're not videos. So it's a bit hard to put a value on like, what would you pay on a monthly basis to have access to these paid tweets? But I think with all of these innovations, you'll see that once people start to play with it, you'll see new ways of of thinking and new ways of, of tweeting will come out of it. Because creators will be like, okay, there's an opportunity here. What can we make that's different that can be behind that paywall? Um, as I sit here today though, Chad, I don't know if I would pay for any of my, my people I follow. Yeah. Um, and so I, I still I'm still to be convinced from a personal perspective as whether I would actually do that. But I think it makes a lot of sense as a feature or functionality. We've seen it on YouTube trying to put these these kind of join, these pay joining um communities and stuff. I think every social network is doing their best to help creators make money because They need them on the platform right and so the more they can help them create money the better it's going to be and so yeah can you think of anyone you follow chad that you would pay to to see their tweets
1: definitely not um i'm certainly not quite the i'm not the twitter user that you are barry so i use it a whole lot less than you do um but but even so definitely not um like you say for for that character limit um i i personally don't see myself getting paid value Um, out of out of any of the people who I follow. And I mean, I I guess it might even evolve what the Twitter account of the future is. And it might actually just become a place where you follow other people's curations. So links to articles, uh, links to, you know, interesting pieces, that kind of thing. Uh, Do you have you thought about that at all? I think it's a very
0: astute point because that's kind of how I use Twitter to be honest. I use Twitter because I I rely on individuals whose tastes and who I think are interesting to point me to relevant news stories and relevant articles and stuff. And so as we've spoken a lot of the past about how much content is out there, it's just overwhelming. If you were to try and like cover all your bases, you're never going to get there, right? And so there are these human curators, these, these bloggers, these creators who kind of you trust them to go and do the research and figure out what's interesting, and then you consume what they are pointing you towards. And so what I think is going to happen is that I don't think – I could be wrong on this, but my, my gut feel says that maybe this becomes like a little bit of a newsletter of curation. So in a way, maybe, maybe behind the paywall, maybe there isn't a character limit. Maybe it can become an email newsletter type thing. Yeah where just instead of being via email, it comes to your Twitter app, for example. Or maybe it is those those five recommendations on articles to read or whatever the story is. And if the price is kind of low enough and you really believe in someone, you really believe in their writing, yeah. and you find lots of value in them, it makes a lot more sense to me to pay that creator directly than to buy a subscription to the New York Times or to the Wall Street Journal or to whatever your local news source is, right? Because yeah. it just means that it's going to be more curated to, to the kind of person you want to follow um and yeah so i'm I'm excited to see what happens i i think it's i think it was coming for a long time um i I'm, I'm i don't know where i stand on it yet but i think that it's worth a try that's for sure
1: it definitely is um so let's see when that when that pops up um the other announcement that we were going to mention is uh of spotify i, I did kind of uh, set us up that way and and that is because spotify are introducing a similar thing uh where you can mm-hmm. also sort of creator specific subscriptions um which are also really interesting so you can kind of like i guess uh pick some people whose whose uh, content you like and uh sort of you know support them in in that sort of way um also we we know that spotify are going really hard at the podcasting game um and so they are sort of setting up a podcast ad network and i guess this is this is really quite interesting because podcasts for a while i mean of course at this point in time it in terms of uh you know hours that people spend listening to podcasts versus watching shows or, or youtube or whatever the case is uh, people spend a heck of a lot of time listening to podcasts and the problem is unless you nail it down to a potent, uh, you know nail it down to the actual show and who that show's demographic is, it's really hard to match your campaigns uh, in the way that other digital sort of platforms can, like Facebook or uh, you know or Apple or whatever the case is. So what they what I understand of this, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, Barry, I understand they're going to be using the information that they know about their listeners um, to actually smart, like insert sort of smart adverts in the way that youtube does i, I just look at this uh, this graphic that they've um that they've released and i i understand it's is gathering all of this data around what the podcast is and i guess the demographic of what that podcast uh, attracts and then also looking at the the users themselves and matching adverts that uh, relate to them is that right
0: that, that's spot on, Chad. And, and we've seen this story play out before. You kind of alluded to it. Like, if you think back to those days of, the old banner ads on websites, where it would just be a, 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 a standard ad, and you'd pay a certain amount for it, yep. and you just hope that you're reaching the right audience, right? And that's kind of what podcasting advertising is right now. A, a, a brand or partner will go to a podcaster, and they, and they hope that they get the audience right, and they put this, this 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 thirty second ad read into their show, and they try and push traffic to whatever site they're trying to push to, yep. right? But as you say, the Facebooks and the the Googles of the world have have, have built this incredible system that. that provides customized adverts for specific people. And that's what Spotify is now trying to bring to the podcasting game. And so I, I, I think you're right. I think that they're going to find those those spots in podcasts and insert dynamically different ads. So I will yeah. hear a different ad to you depending on my interests, depending on what podcasts I listen to, any of the data they have on me. And if Spotify can do this well and really increase the, the ROI on these advertisers, they're going to bring a whole lot of more advertising money into the game. And so I... I can't remember ever seeing a company going this hard into, an, uh, into a vertical. Yeah. If you think about the amount of money they've spent in the last two years, Chad, these ginormous acquisitions, the Joe Rogan acquisition, all of these crazy, crazy pieces of money, and now they're building all of the, the accompanying features to become the podcasting giants. Yeah. Why Apple haven't done this, I don't know, because they've been the kings for like 10 years now, and Spotify are coming and eating their lunch day after day. So I think that it's very exciting to see from a podcasting perspective
1: yeah it, it's interesting it, it kind of talks to both of the company's business models and i kind of i kind of see apple as a company that doesn't pay people for content unless they're directly selling their content whereas what we're seeing is uh, spotify are more than happy to pay someone to generate content just to attract a user onto their platform and uh and that's important i i think you know you, you can't just expect people to just rock up just because you are you know your tech is the best out there uh, it, it's good to it's good to support creators as well and uh, like you say just put a bit more of an effort to actually get that high quality content onto your platform too the other thing that they're looking at doing is uh, introducing like we just said sort of paid podcast subscriptions so at the moment this is only tailored to us creators at this stage Uh, and i think anchor actually supports this at the moment uh, for us creators but i think that's only in the anchor app Um, but that that again is also very interesting and i think when we look at the podcasting world uh, for me it's going to be interesting to see what remains as a free podcast one of the biggest sort of parts of appeal for listening to a podcast is the fact that it's free and so Potentially, you just have the, this use case where either you listen to ads or you pay to have the ad-free version, or you're getting exclusive content if you pay. Uh, I think about someone like Sam Harris and, and how he's turned it into you know, the Waking Up app and uh, the exclusive podcast feed for paying members, uh, but then you also have a free version which, which entitles you to you know, the first half of the show or whatever that case is. I think it's an interesting space to watch.
0: Definitely. And, and it's playing out in every space. I mean, it, it's the same thing we talked about on Twitter. It's that same sort of some behind a paywall, some in the free, and you're hoping to convert a certain percentage to, to become paid members. And I think we're seeing lots of innovation in the space as we try and figure out how do we get the creators to be paid what they're worth, right? for the longest time, people were creating things and just hoping for the best, hoping to really make it big and become a ginormous success. And the only way to really make decent money was to become that that top, top 0.01%. right? But if we can get to a stage where a small niche podcast that tackle something very, very small, but for a thousand or 2000 really passionate listeners, and they can convert 10 to 20% into a paid subscription, they can maybe make that a full-time thing, right? Yeah. And, and, and be able to like suv- survive as a podcaster in a way that wasn't possible before. So what I think we'll see is we will see a huge long tail effect where it's not just the Joe Rogans of the world who are able to do this for a living, but hopefully like lots and lots of smaller creators, if they can find their niche audience and really provide value to them, they can make enough money to survive. And if they do that, Spotify is going to become the absolute giant because they're going to be the ones that enable this to happen, right? And so for new podcasters coming out to the scene, if you're looking at like your career, how are you going to start yeah. this podcast, Spotify has to be at the top of your list, surely.
1: It has to. It has to. And uh, and and sort of one of the reasons why, and one of the reasons why we've kind of picked Spotify, one of their companies, Anchor, who's the, the sort of distribution platform, uh, is that they're also intrigued by this idea of video podcasts, which I'm very excited about. Uh, we, of course, default mm-hmm. to YouTube, uh, and that's where we post our stuff. But how great if you can listen to your podcast and very easily be able to switch to video whenever you want so if there's something particularly interesting you want to see what the facial expressions are like you can just quickly switch to video uh, and you know not have to leave the app and i think that's what anchor is doing by trying to beta test video podcasts
0: i I, I hear you i hear you i'm a little bit more skeptical though chad i think that one of the benefits of podcasting is this ability to kind of do it listen to it while you're doing other stuff right and so while there are certain podcasts that really rely on the video aspect of it, I do think the vast majority of listening is still going to be in audio just because like, it's, it's one of those things you do while you're doing the dishes, or while you're driving, when you're on the commutes and at the gym or whatever the story is. Um, and so while it's interesting to me, I don't think it's going to have the outsized impact that some people are because I, I still do think that 99% of, of listening is going to be audio. Um, yeah. <clears throat> Whether video where the Podcasting creates new types of shows is another story altogether. Yeah. So maybe you see like almost many TV shows happening on Spotify where it's a, a podcast in a way, but it's a little bit better produced, it's got some storylines, and maybe yeah. it's not a four hour interview conversation, but maybe it's a 25 minutes like short and sharp piece. And so maybe there's a way for it to compete with YouTube or compete with those sort of platforms in the way that Quibi was trying to do and unfortunately failed in, in, in the last year or so. So, okay. yeah, I'm a little more skeptical about video podcasting, um, but I think that it's it's been interesting to watch nonetheless.
1: That's interesting because that's exactly what we're doing, Perry. So do you not do you not back what we're doing? Do you not find it a, uh, a good a good place to be sort of spending do, our time? I, I do back what we're doing. I do back what we're doing. Just kidding. Just kidding. <laughs> Okay, cool. So, uh, I mean, now we're up to speed with all of the technology news, certainly the the tech news that we wanted to chat about uh, for this past week. And now we can move on to uh, why everyone is here and and actually listening to uh, what we're (laughs) speaking about. And bombshell, absolute bombshell interview that we saw this past week. There's been quite a bit of hype that had been building up to this interview. And I think everyone just was waiting To cast their eyes on this full piece. Uh, Loads of little snips and clips released beforehand. Uh, But we finally got the the release. And of course we're talking about the Oprah interview of uh, Megan and Harry. And Barry, just before we start chatting about this, in terms of the viewership, because I think this is one of the reasons we need to speak about this, of course. When it's screened live, and of course it's reached more people after the fact, but while it was screening live... It hit 17 million viewers in the US and 11 million viewers in the UK. Now, that's the average number throughout the two-hour piece. So anyone who popped on and didn't find it interesting and popped off, although that would be interesting if that was the case, uh, they don't count in that number. This is the average. Uh, Staggering, staggering viewership numbers um, for a highly anticipated piece
0: yeah, definitely. Those numbers are hard to, hard to wrap your head around. Um, I think that this was obviously a heavily anticipated interview. And, and I, I, th- I think it's clear, Chad, that Oprah is, is, is really the real queen, if you think about this, yeah. right? Because she is, the, she is that, that canonical, iconic interviewer that gets to do all of these very high profile pieces. And I think that there was so much buildup. There was obviously lots of good marketing. Oprah really knows how to market her stuff. Yeah. Um, and so those clips forehand was getting everyone involved. Lots and lots of drama behind the scenes. And uh, everyone tuned in. To ha- have that sort of average numbers on a two-hour piece, chat is incredibly yeah. rare. We're not talking about like a 30-minute TV show. We're not talking about like a a seven-minute YouTube video. We're talking about a two-hour interview, um, which is really, really incredible. And so, yeah, those numbers are crazy. In South Africa, if I looked at my Twitter account, it seemed like the whole South Africa was watching as well, Chad. So I think there were lots and lots of people around the world watching.
1: Well, it's good to know that you have the whole of South Africa on Twitter, Barry. Uh, that, that's uh, <laughs> that's a good thing to know. I'm just kidding. Um, so, of course, let's uh, let's dig into the, the key bits of this interview. Why did everyone find it so fascinating? Uh, we've been talking about uh, Meghan and Harry for a long time. Uh, obviously, w- you know, we, we it was kind of it wasn't. It was, I suppose it was after the wedding, because I think we only started our podcast a while after the wedding. But as their story, it was close though. It was probably yeah. it was probably pretty close uh, as you know as the story developed and they wanted to become more independent it's been a common theme that we've been chatting about and of course, part of the reason is because of this veil, this royal veil, and we always like to speculate what's happening behind or you know underneath the veil it's always good to to peel it back and uh, and and kind of just get a a good understanding of what's happening underneath that and of course. In the last couple of years, this sort of suspense has been building up because of the crown, which I certainly think has uh, got some extra interest on the royal family. Of course, there's been uh, an an enormous amount of interest on them without it, but uh, you you can't deny that it's played a part in the last couple of years to bring even more scrutiny onto the royal family. So when they decided to go independent of course a lot of us you know were wondering why uh you know obviously it's a tough job and you know I think we can all re- we can all kind of relate to that uh, just from what we've what we've seen but the the key part here is that ultimately they lacked support uh, they lacked support from basically the media um and there's some very very interesting examples that were mentioned on the interview, and I found some other ones uh, since then that I think we'll quickly go through, Barry. Uh, but basically, this idea that the media from day one were extremely harsh on Meghan, uh, and you know whether that is because of sort of racial undertones, whether that is something else, they undeniably attacked Meghan from from day one, and. The, the way you see this is by looking at the contrasting headings uh is the, the sort of headlines to these articles so so let's let's go into some of these examples quickly um there's obviously quite a few so let's just very quickly pull this up um so the first one barry let's quickly talk sorry i'm having a few technical difficulties over here uh <laughs> so, so the first one is uh this idea of uh basically cradling you know holding just holding the baby bump and uh yeah, it, it it just looks affectionate to me. Uh, you know, I don't see anything uh, weird about it. Kate's headline reads, Not long ago, pregnant Kate tenderly cradles her baby bump while wrapping up her royal duties ahead of maternity leave. Blah, blah, blah. Meghan's one reads, Why can't Meghan Markle keep her hands off her bump? Experts tackle the question that's got the nation talking. Is it pride, vanity, acting, or a new age bonding technique? I mean, the contrast there is just just wild. Um, you know, this example of Megan holding, you know, having her hands in her pockets and you, you've got the queen there with her hands in her pockets. But Megan gets the headline, step too far. Meghan Markle slammed for putting her hands in her pockets. <laughs> this is the one that really, really got me, Barry. Um, and I, I just thought this was ridiculous. Kate's headline is Kate's morning sickness cure. Prince William gifted with an avocado sorry gifted yeah gifted with an avocado for pregnant duchess and Meghan's one reads Meghan Markle's beloved avocado linked to human rights abuse and drought millennial shame how crazy that contrast
0: yeah. Chad uh, how how is that sort of stuff news like that, that that's what I keep coming back to like like it's very clear the media has this narrative, right? They had the narrative around Kate and the narrative around Megan, and they were going to do anything they could to just feed whatever the narrative was, right? And that plays out again and again and again, and that's why you're seeing those contrasting headlines. Um, And of course, we have to remember that these sorts of news sites are purely looking for clicks at this point, right? There's no... I don't think there's any real journalistic integrity left in those sorts of publications, right? All they're trying to do is kind of get the outrage and, and get the the, the the reactions that they, they're hoping for. And so yeah. what they do is they, they draw those comparisons. And whether they're fair or not doesn't actually matter because they get the click. Because you, you want to find out, oh, why is the avocado linked to child abuse? And, and you want to dig into that going forward, right? And so it it's, it seems it seems harmless if you look at it from, from that perspective. But if you're sitting in Megan's shoes and you're reading these things about you on a daily basis, it, week after week after week, these like unsubstantiated lies, these these the, these bending of the truth, these these like character assassinations on you, it has to take a toll. It really has to take a, a toll. You can be as mentally strong as you want. You're never going to be able to block all of that out. And so I think this is indicative of how how damaging the uk media specifically can be like we we we've always known that the uk media is more extreme than a lot a lot of other media mm. outlets around the world and this is a great example of a media outlet really destroying someone's life in in in, in the in the example of megan
1: yeah i completely agree and and then i guess the idea that the palace have a lot of tools at their hands uh, they they they're well connected with the press they are able to uh you know control some of this uh, some of this narrative and the idea that they didn't an the idea that they have done so for other members of the family in the past uh, and that was something that was very very clearly mentioned in the interview the second lack of support and I think this was also really really key and played maybe even heavier into into their decision to leave is the lack of mental health support now Me- Megan mentioned that she was on the brink of suicide and uh, you know that was that was quite the, quite the moment. Uh, I mean, of course, we've been talking about mental health for a little while, and I'm really glad that the stigma is starting to be removed uh, in in the way that it is in in the last couple of years. But for her to kind of come onto the screen and be 100 vulnerable with everyone, and and you know let her know her truth, um, I think takes an immense amount of courage. Um, and the idea that You know, she asked for help, she asked for help, sort of counseling or whatever the case is, and none was granted. There's some sort of technicalities with the HR department, not classifying her as an employee or talking about how bad it would look on the family or whatever the case is. But I, I think this is pretty ridiculous, really.
0: Yeah, I think it's a very extreme example of, of some of the, the atmosphere we saw in The Crown. And obviously, I don't know how much of it is, is 100% true. But the portrayal in The Crown is that the royal family and everything behind it kind of puts their emotions to the side. And they want to bury all the emotion because they're all about duty. They're all about like putting their best face forward. And you never want to show weakness. You never want to show anything that might damage this idea that this is a special family that's been given the, the birthright to the country, right? And so throughout the crown, a lot of the stories are talking about these human beings who are locked inside this prison, not yeah. being able to express emotion, not being able to deal with difficult things in their life. And um, if you look at like Princess Margaret and, and, and her whole story about how year after year after year, her emotions were, were forced down and, and she wasn't able yeah. to deal with any of it. And this is just an example of it coming to life. Like when Megan is going through difficult, difficult mental health struggles, the fact that she can't... Like talk about it or the fact you can't get help because you're supposed to be strong all the time. You're supposed to be able to put duty in front of your humanity is, is a really big problem. And I think it's one of the reasons that the royal family are going to find themselves in, in deep travel going forward is because the world is moving on. This idea of you have to be strong all the time and you have to like really hide all your mental struggles, yep. that is going away. And, and luckily, we're seeing the stigma. Like you said, we're seeing the stigma disappear. And, and with our generation coming through, hopefully, that continues that, that, that momentum. And you're going to get to a point where, well, hopefully, it gets a point where talking about your mental health is as normal as talking about your physical health. And when it gets to that point, if the royal family is not able to show emotion, they're going to be completely unrelatable.
1: I agree. Uh, And and I was quite surprised by this because I've seen that the Royal, well, certainly Kate and William have been involved in doing a lot of work around mental health. There was this Heads Together Foundation and they were pretty, you know, pretty key in that, uh, in that foundation. So I was quite surprised by this that they, that, you know, they didn't offer her any help at all. Um, But it certainly, certainly was uh, quite the revelation. So the last the last sort of key thing and i think the reason why you know a lot of people have been talking about this interview uh, obviously now that we've addressed why they left and and their sort of decision to leave there were obviously some sort of racist comments so comments and concerns about the color of archie's skin uh, and apparently this was the discussion that was had with harry and a senior member Of the royal family which we've later heard out is not the Queen or Prince Philip Um, so you know speculation obviously that sort of leaves Charles William or their wives Um, so so, so that's obviously quite the quite the revelation Um, and then the idea of Archie not being granted title so not being you know granted not being called a, a prince and the sort of side effect of that meaning you know he's not entitled to security um, and you know Oprah actually asked why that was, what what the sort of speculation for that being, um, and and Oprah sort of said, "Do you think it was to do with the color of his skin?" And uh, Meghan said, "Well, if that's the assumption you're making, I think it's a fair assumption to make." So there's no doubt that uh, you know the royal family found, found themselves in a in a quite a predicament really. And for me, their response, which uh, which we'll have a look at quickly, uh, which which basically. Was a you know a response a palace statement on behalf of the queen that said the whole family is saddened to learn the full extent of how challenging the last few years have been for Harry and Meghan. The issues raised, particularly that of race, are concerning. While some recollections may vary, they are taken very seriously and will be addressed by the family privately. Harry, Meghan, and Archie will always be much loved members of the family. Barry, I don't know about you, but me hearing that they're going to be addressing it privately doesn't give me any sort of uh you know comfort on the back of this interview and the sort of accusations within it
0: it's so tone deaf chad it's so tone deaf that that kind of press that kind of press release is just pure pr like it's just yeah. pure non- nonsense there's no substance there there's no remorse there's no there's no like it's a little bit snarky in a sense, like while some recollections may vary, basically saying we got a different side of the story, right? Yeah. Um, And so I honestly think this, like this is a bold statement, I know. I think it's at the start of the end for the royal family. I, I don't see how they can be so out of touch with society and still think they're going to enjoy all of these privileges that they get given. It, it's, it's, it's still crazy to me that we have a king, have a king or a queen in England yeah. in 2021, right? That gets decided by your, your bloodline and and that they have this elevated status and this kind of, untouchable nature in a way like you can't touch them you can't do anything and they just kind of live these crazy um affluent lives like spending all of this wealth so yeah i think i think if they're going to be this out of touch and this tone deaf the british citizens are not going to put up with it i think that the cracks have really started to show and uh, this is another example of how it's these archaic traditions that they're holding onto for dear life because it's what's got them to this point. Um, But if you don't adapt to the world, if you're not going to kind of realize the progress you're making and and realize that things have to change, you're going to be phased out. We've seen it with any sort of organization you can think of. Um, If you're not going to adapt and you're not going to kind of keep up with the times, you're going to end up on the wrong side of history. And so while that's a bold statement, I, I do think it's the beginning of the end for them.
1: Yeah, I think it's a it's a statement that warrants merit, Barry. I think you've hit the nail on the head, and I think this this interview was you know quite, quite the the, the catalyst to that happening if if that ever does happen. Um, I mean, let's let's talk about some of the things that that Harry said. I mean, I don't think you watched the full interview, uh, but you have certainly read up quite a lot on it. Um, I mean, some of the stuff that he said. He spoke about the the fine relationship that the royal family have with the media and the almost the fear that they have um against the media. And so I wonder whether you know and I, again I don't want to I don't want to make this too bold either. But I wonder the intention of this interview because very clearly he knew he knew what sort of territory he was he was standing on especially talking about that delicate balance that the family and has with the media and the fear that they have for the media, or for their perception, uh, or for their, like you say, their their existence. Really, this this is an existential crisis at the end of the day, um, and you know, especially when we see what sort of cancel culture. I know we say cancel culture, and that normally appears, to, You know, it kind of normally fits in the realm of creators and sort of personalities and whatever the cases. But I think it is possible for uh, a public to to cancel an institution as well. Uh, if they if they don't see the responses that they'd like to, so just in terms of the attention of the interview, what is your feeling uh, given some of those comments as well?
0: I think it's about speaking truth. Um, mm-hmm. The sense that I got from from what I saw is that they've been holding this in for a long time and and kind of been dealing with this stuff privately. But but it, if you don't speak truth, you just you're never going to live a full life. It, it kind of felt to me like they they'd been trying their best to kind of keep things separate and they've moved away and they're trying to get away from things and yeah. obviously bring their children up in a, in a, in a, in a better environment. But at the end of the day, the, like if you're going to, if you're the kind of person who's going to speak truth, then you're going to do it. Whether they should have done it in an interview with Oprah, I don't know. Like we can debate that till the cows come home. Sure, sure. But the fact that they're, that they're speaking about this, I think it, that's the intention and <clears throat> it's, 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 it comes down to the fact that can you have a democracy and a monarchy in the same system? Because they're two different things, right? If if, if you're like, like your media is supposed to be this to society, they're supposed to kind of become that that the journalists are the ones who are looking out for the citizens and keeping the powerful accountable. But if the the monarchy are completely separate and completely like they can't be touched by the media, then is it a true democracy? Because you've almost got this authoritarian type family that still has a lot of control and power. You can't have it both ways. you either going to have the monarchy or you have democracy. And so in my opinion, the media should be able to dig into these things and should be able to kind of talk about it. And obviously, it's idealistic because a lot of them are just in it for, for click. So sure. It's unfortunately, you don't get the same sort of quality as you would like. But I think interviews like this are important just because they bring perspectives to the table that haven't had a voice before. And they bring perspectives that, that can really help other people. I think that Megan speaking out in the way that she did will help a lot of black people, will help a lot of people yeah. who sh- in those difficult situations to realize that, okay, if she can speak out and if she can like put her foot down and she can stand up for herself, then so can I. And if Harry can do that for his wife and say, listen, this is not okay. Like this, this is not yeah. how life should be, and this is not how we should be, that really is a strong statement and if 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 i was a royal family this is this is the change you want to see in the monarchy like these are the people who you yeah. want to be leading this this change into into the new society into, into the new modern world which is much more tolerant of race much more tolerant of these sorts of issues and the fact that they just kicked them out or or kind of pushed them away says all you need to know right harry and meghan could have been an amazing redemption story of how the monarchy is adapting to the new world and realizing that this bloodline that's come down, that's perfectly white and pure and kind of very, very specific is maybe not how the world should be handled. And maybe we should be thinking differently, but then they just go and ignore them. And so if I'm Harry and I want to speak truth and I want to go to my deathbed, knowing that I've kind of done my bit to kind of stand up for my wife and for my family, then it makes sense to me. Does that, does that resonate with
1: you? It does. It does. I completely agree. Uh but there was one section where I kind of questioned the whole interview if I'm honest. Uh got to play devil's advocate for for a moment Barry if you if you'd uh humor me for a little bit. Right at the end, uh Oprah asked if if they had received the support that they needed. So obviously they had clearly mentioned it was you know relating to the media and uh and uh, of course mental health and all that kind of stuff as well. If they had received the support that they wanted would they have continued to, to have would they have would they have stayed uh, and the response was yes absolutely without a doubt so there, there was a bit of a contrast that i found as well because he spoke about how william and charles are trapped trapped in the system they can't leave is uh, is the sentence that he said but at the same time he if received if he received the, the support that he wanted would have stayed uh and so I'm I'm kind of torn by that, uh, because for me, that is quite a contrast.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. Um, I, I think I need to listen to it in context to get a better yeah. sense of what I think. I, it, it's one of those things where it might have just been a way to kind of try and isolate the reasons to make it a bit easier to kind of deal with, because... Sure. it. These sorts of decisions, you don't come to that sort of decision just because of one thing, right? It's always a, a combination yeah. of tons and tons of different things. And it's, it's eventually the, the straw that breaks the camel's back that kind of forces you to, to make a decision like that. And so maybe this is just a way of trying to compartmentalize things. Um, I do think that they have really have milked this in a way. So so the interview still feels a little bit icky, even though I agree with some of the sentiments mm. and I agree with the, the messaging and whatnot. I still think it, it got way more attention than it deserves. In my opinion, these guys are still two rich celebrities. That's that's still how I see them. I don't see them as special. I don't see them as kind of really, really unique, heavenly chosen people, right? I see them as two celebrities. And so it does feel a little bit self-indulgent. It does feel a little bit kind of a little bit on the nose. And so yeah, yeah I, I, I understand that 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 thought, Chad. And I think that there's a balance here. You're trying to you're trying to step up and you're trying to speak your truth, but also you gotta try and remain as humble and as kind of mm. as 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 simple as you can keep it does that make sense
1: yeah that makes sense that makes sense uh, i i just thought it was a fascinating thing to discuss because not no one else really was discussing it and for me it was it was glaringly obvious uh how how that how that contrast played out as well. Uh, but of course the, the important issues are important and I'm, I'm not saying that they're not, uh, but, but I did find that interesting too. So on the back of this, uh, we saw the very po- polarizing figure that is Pierce Morgan, <laughs> um, resigning from his job. Uh, and obviously, you know, he didn't just resign from his job. Uh, basically he went on the morning after the airing in the U S. So this was, you know, sort of one o'clock in the morning. I think it aired in the UK and so the majority of people actually only watched it the following night, but he came on in the morning because he did he did manage to watch it uh, and basically said that he didn't believe a word that Megan said. He said something like, "If she she could read me a weather report, and I wouldn't I wouldn't believe it." Something like that. <laughs> um, and on the back of that, Ofcom, who is the media regulator here in the UK, received more than forty-one thousand complaints. Barry in a single day because of that and that's more complaints than they've received for any program in the past 15 years uh which which I find insane um and and of course part of the reason part of the reason is because of you know her vulnerability here her vulnerability of of coming across and saying hey I was thinking of committing suicide and there you have Piers Morgan in his studio saying I don't believe a word she said um, and so, you know, I think a lot of people, a lot of people reacted uh, to that, understandably. But at the same point, I, I kind of, I kind of get uh, where where Pierce is right now, and and he's basically saying that he'll he'll die on this hill of freedom of speech, like he'll he'll die fighting for this cause, uh, because ultimately it's his opinion. Uh and so, you know, I think he's entitled to have that opinion. Uh, where whether he believes or doesn't believe her, it's for everyone to decide whether they believe or they don't believe uh, you know, her after watching the interview. And I think that is important, like you say, Barry, to watch the whole interview in its full context so that you 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 get uh every single little nuance from that discussion and uh and ultimately decide where it is that you lie on the spectrum. Do you agree with this? Uh, or do you think it was right for him to have lost his job ultimately uh, by saying that he doesn't believe a word she says?
0: Yeah. I- I- I don't agree you should have lost his job. I think that um, freedom of speech is really important. And unfortunately, mm-hmm. cancel culture does, does go too far in these instances. And the fact that you can lose your job because you have a difference of opinion is 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 silly. It really is. Because the whole point of a democracy, the whole point of freedom of speech is that you're able to debate these ideas. And so criticize him for sure. Kind of yep. get, like yep. like talk about him and and tear his arguments apart and criticize him, that's absolutely fine. But to kind of force a resignation, I don't really know. I don't think it's the right way to do it. At the same time, though, anyone who's watched Piers Morgan's career, surely you can't be surprised by this. Like, he's a very well-known provocateur. His whole stick is just taking the opposite side of the coin and just arguing it, right? If you've watched any of his stuff, that's all he does. I don't even know what he believes. I think he just takes the opposite of everyone's thinking and brings that to the table. And that's why he gets hired on these shows, Chad, because he brings ratings, he creates drama. All of this stuff is entertainment. We have to get away from this idea that is actual news. It, it, it's not news. It's entertainment. Um, yeah. And the, the, the moment we start taking Piers Morgan seriously on a topic like this, we're in trouble <laughs> because he's a troll. He's a provocateur. Yeah. And so what he's going to do is he's going to leave this. Some other show is going to snap him up because they, they like the ratings 100%. and he's going to keep doing it time and time again. So I think that it's one of those things where – If you're going to hire Piers Morgan, you know why you're hiring him. You're not hiring him for his journalistic integrity. You're hiring him for the ratings. And so you have to be able to deal with that. And and the fact that you are going to make him resign or fire him or whatever they did because he has an alternative point of view just means you don't understand the person that you hired. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, I think it makes makes complete sense. I mean, he said some other stuff too. Uh, He said that he thought, and I'm I'm paraphrasing here completely. Don't quote me on it. Uh, He said that he thought it was contemptible um the the interview sort of going out and speaking against uh the queen he believes was contemptible um and uh yeah i mean i, I certainly thought that was an interesting view as well and he also mentioned the, the the timing of this which is that prince philip is lying in bed in hospital and has been for a little while uh but you know a lot of the the guests that he had coming on to the interview said well so what and you know, I tend to agree on the timing front, um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I, his, his views are interesting. Uh, you, you, you've got to give him that. <laughs>
0: <laughs> he's he's certainly an interesting character, Chad. Yeah. And I don't think he's likable. Yeah. I, I don't find him particularly compelling. But you, it's kind of like a car car crash. You can't take your your your, your look away, right? You have yeah. to look at it. You have to look at him. Um, and so I think there there are these figures in our in our public discourse that that, that do this, that take the other side. And I think they're important, even though you might not get it right 100% of the time. I think it's important to have someone taking the other side of the arguments, because otherwise we get into this ideological narrative where we just keep go running down this track without giving any sort of devil's advocate view. Yeah. And so obviously he doesn't do it in a very tactful way, which is probably his problem but i think it's important to have people like him in these conversations to keep us on the straight and narrow and so yeah i, I i've got no problem with him i really don't mm. I, I i don't understand why people people take him so seriously when it's very clear in his career that all he wants to do is is derail conversations and outrage people and kind of just prod and poke and kind of put his finger in the in, in the wounds of various yeah. arguments um, and that's what he does his whole career. So why why is everyone surprised? I don't know.
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I agree with you. I, I don't understand the surprise either. Him storming off set—that's uh, actually a video I still haven't watched because that for me wasn't interesting. <laughs> More interesting for me was what he said that uh, that you know caused this massive outrage. Uh, and to be honest, uh, you know, I I didn't I didn't relate. I didn't see why it was uh, as outrageous as it was uh, because I I still believe it was his opinion uh, to not believe her. And I think he is entitled to that opinion Uh, and, and whether that opinion uh, should be heavily weighted. I mean, like you say, Barry, I I don't believe it should be in any case. Uh, Nevertheless, uh, one thing that I think was a surprise is uh, basically the society of editors. So that's a, a a body in the UK that kind of governs, I suppose, a whole bunch of, uh, you know, of the media agencies, journalists, all that kind of stuff. Uh, They've got a whole bunch of, a couple of hundred members, and uh, effectively, they were they were called to question after all of these contrasting headlines that we just showed were you know put out there into the world, it, right next to each other. Uh, it it begged the question whether you know the the UK press is bigoted or you know racist. And he straight out went there and said the UK media is not racist. Uh, he he sort of put his wedge in the sand, if you'd like, and said. That is a fact. They are not racist. Um, and I, I think to ever take such a hard position on something without, uh, without allowing enough time for, for discussion, uh, introspection, all of that kind of stuff, I think it's a dangerous thing to do. And so what you did see is you saw a couple of the hundred members who are on this body. Completely disagreeing with him and saying, "Yeah, maybe the you know maybe the UK media is at fault here, and maybe there's something that we need to look at. Is it okay for us to have a head that is not prepared to admit that?" Uh, and so we saw him resign, uh, which I also thought was was quite interesting. So yeah, a few resignations this past week, Barry. But but but, Chad, don't you think it misses the point a bit? Like, how can you say the media
0: in this general statement, right? That, that's a yeah. very general thing. Within the media, there are 10,000 different types of organizations. Yeah. And you're going to have racist journalists. There are definitely journalists that oh, are racist. Yeah. There are definitely editors that are that are racist. But you can't call the media racist because it's just this ginormous conglomerate of all these people, right? Okay. And so the moment we start generalizing in that way and, and, like you say, making bold statements as to they are racist or they aren't racist, how the hell do you figure that out? How do you kind of t- pull apart those kind of conversations? Yeah. We really have to be much more granular than that. We have to step up when individual publications or individual journalists are making these sort of statements. That's when we have to kind of stand up and have these conversations to kind of sit back now and and in kind of the, the wake of the interview and then decide, cool, this is what should happen. This is what should happen. Therefore you guys must resign. It's, it's, it's a bit silly hmm. to me. It's kind of an overreaction. Um, maybe there is systemic racism maybe there are structures in place that really do have bias but then let's go and find out where they are and let's identify exactly. them and let's fix them let's not throw around these generalizations saying the uk media because who does that even who are you referring to right it's too big a group of people
1: yeah i agree i agree it's it, it's all it's all uh, an interesting discussion and uh i mean yeah like you said and as you as soon as you keep it as this sort of hard yes or no uh kind of discussion is it you know is it on or off uh, that that's not really how we resolve these types of discussions it's like you say barry it's a whole lot more nuanced uh, and i think you should always approach it that way as well so that's what happened this last week let's talk about some stuff we found interesting stuff i found interesting I'm going to start this one off on a very random note, Barry. Now, we've gone super <laughs> random on These this podcast.
0: crazy, Chad. These notes look crazy. I'm excited for this one.
1: <laughs> but, uh, I mean, this is an important topic. It's a crazy important discussion. And obviously, we're talking about, uh, you know, global warming, greenhouse gases, uh, all of this kind of stuff. We're talking about cows. Uh, and, of course, we know that the bovine burp is a massive problem. Uh, having cattle and you know us getting byproducts from cattle causes an Im- massive amount of, uh, you know, gas emissions into the atmosphere. And uh, yeah, I mean, basically, sort of fourteen and a half percent of human caused greenhouse gas emissions come from livestock, and of that, two thirds uh, come from from cows. And so, basically, there's been a whole bunch of research that has been done that says if you sprinkle a tiny little bit of it's a variation of seaweed. I'm going to try and pronounce it. It's called Asparagopsis taxiformis. You sprinkle hey. a bit of that, Barry, into a cow's dinner. Uh, and, you know, that that's the sprinkle will make up about 0.2% of their total meal, which is nothing. Um, and basically, as a result of that, they will burp 85% less methane. <laughs> Uh, And, you know, basically the trials also showing that they'll require a whole lot less food overall. Um, So I I think this is fascinating. Who would have known that, you know, a potential variation of seaweed could solve this problem for us?
0: This is why I love humans, Chad. Imagine being (laughs) the scientist who decides, okay, we need to try and fix, as you you quote in the notes, the big (laughs) bovine burp problem. How are we going to fix it? Let's try and figure it out. We're going to take this, Abstract random piece of seaweed and we're gonna sprinkle it into the (laughs) cow's dinner and it's gonna make an 85% difference. It really it fills me with hope. It really does. It's such a cool story because it shows that for all of the existential worry about these big problems, for all of the, the concerns that humanity faces, we are continuing to push the boundaries and trying to fix them. And it's these sorts of stories that I wish would get to the news, Chad. I wish we didn't yeah. always hear about the bad stuff. I wish we yeah, heard about these sorts of stories as to scientists who are finding these ingenious ways that, that seem totally random but are making really like, significant results in, when it comes to combating climate change. And so this has to be one of the many tools we use to try and tackle this problem. And the more we can see of these sorts of simple yet effective mechanisms, the better we're going to be able to handle this going forward. And so I love that you brought this up, Chad. I think it's (laughs) hilarious. I think it's amazing. And uh, yeah, I think we should all uh, get a T-shirt that we're solving the big bovine boop problem. I love that.
1: Well, uh, I mean, we can certainly make some across-the-pond merch that says that if you'd like, Barry. Uh, I mean, that would be way so random. Okay, so that's what I found interesting this week. Uh, I mean, you know, I I find random stuff interesting sometimes. You found some other stuff interesting that's actually pretty cool.
0: Yeah, so not not as random, but more, <laughs> more, more looking at the tech side of things. Um, and I wanted to talk about immersive 3D gaming. We've chatted a bit about in the past about how virtual reality is coming and we chatted about Ready Player One, which is this amazing novel where everyone kind of lives in these tiny little boxes, put the goggles on and they live as an avatar in a virtual world and they kind of forget about their physical existence. And we've seen that kind of play out a little bit in our world today. Like a lot of gamers are living in their mother's basements, not really thinking about the real world and and living out all of their, their moments through these virtual things yeah and there was a huge moment in this past week, Chad, a company called Roblox, and more specifically a game called Roblox went public on the New York Stock Exchange. And that to me blows my mind is when a video game like that goes public on the New York Stock Exchange. Nice. now i've never I never played it myself, but after reading a bunch about it, as far as I understand, it's this ginormous, ginormous virtual world with over, I think it's 4 million developers who are building pieces of this world as you go along. And there are like thousands and thousands of mini games within this virtual world. And you kind of have an avatar and you can meet with people, you know, in real life people you've met online and kind of live out a life in this kind of 2d Roblox world. And so it's kind of similar to a Minecraft scenario where you have this building capability of being able to build whatever you want and people love it. People are absolutely fanatical about it. They've got millions and millions of users around the world. And the fact that it goes public on the stock exchange, Chad, just shows how far this gaming has become. It really is pushing the boundaries of what is possible. And I'm just I'm wondering how, how quickly we're going to get to a point like Ready Player One where you do have people living their entire lives in this virtual space. Another big thing that's kind of happened in the last couple months or so is Grand Theft Auto has had this multiplayer game where you kind of can have play with people as opposed to playing on your, on your own. And they've got this proximity chat where if you come close to a character, you can talk to them with your microphone and really like interact with them. And so all of these content creators are living full lives. They're getting arrested. They, they're going (laughs) on dates. They're going to strip clubs all in grand theft auto. And it's becoming like taking over their life. Especially in lockdown, where our lives are not as interesting as we would like them to be, Chad. This ability to go into a virtual world and experience all of this from the comfort of your, your computer, it really points to a significant trend. And I think we're getting closer to Ready Player One than we even realized, Chad.
1: Well, that's what I was about to say, Barry. I was going to say, like when you asked the question, how how close are we? I was going to say, well, I hope not close enough because I hope the world outside uh, is still better than a game because in the scenario that Ready Player One found itself in, the world outside was, was not so great. You know, things were kind of, I don't know, they, they, it, it was much nicer to be in this virtual world than to be outside in the real world. Uh, and so I hope that that doesn't happen very soon. But it is very cool. As a person who loves tech... Um I I do think it's I do think it's so cool and like you say to see an, an a game itself list. Uh I also haven't played anything. I, I haven't even seen uh this game in particular. I mean, I I kind of hear the streamers talking about uh you know Warzone and uh what's the, what's the other one we always talk about Barry? Um
0: Fortnite. Gosh.
1: Fortnite. Fortnite is the other one which I still haven't played either. Um and I mean, you know, there's there's cool features in in these games that all have it's this roaming world as well that you can no you know no two days are the same you can go into different places and do different things but the idea of of grand theft auto having a proximity chat i mean that's a game that i've loved for a long period of time i mean i've played san andreas vice city uh you know gta 3 even before that uh you know gta 5 is what i've got but i haven't pl- haven't finished playing it th- these days i'd like a bit more time that would be good um but uh, but yeah it's it's really cool that's really cool I'll, I'll have to check out what rob roblox actually all entails uh, and that is quite exciting so is it a so i mean just to just to confirm so it's, it's one where you you've got your vr headset on uh and you know you discover all these virtual worlds further to uh ready player one obviously you have all these extra like hand sensors and treadmills that go in all these weird different directions i mean we're not quite there yet are we
0: no, so this isn't even VR yet, Chad. Like Roblox okay. is still using your mouse and keyboard and it's still very much a a, a, a game that we're not you're not fully immersed yet. But the fact that it goes public just means that this, right. they're doing something right. And so I think that the world is going there. And we talked about VR and I think VR is still a while away. I don't think it's gonna happen next year, Chad, but I, I've just been amazed by how much progress it's made. We've chatted about esports. We've chatted about the impact that video gaming is having. When you have a game listing on the stock exchange, that changes everything, right? Mm. Because it, it kind of it kind of sets a standard for where games can go, and it's no longer just a a cool piece of software, a cool piece of hobby, it it can be a really huge multi-billion dollar business. And that's going to bring more and more developers into the space. It's going to get games to keep pushing the boundaries. And as the technology improves and as VR starts to become a part of the puzzle, it can only get more immersive. Mm -hmm. And so how far can this thing go? And that's kind of the question I've been asking myself is that at what point do we get to that level where, like you say, the, the, the virtual world is more interesting than the real world? And I'm not a happy. I don't want that. I don't want that to happen, but it seems inevitable, right? So yeah. Like what's going to change? What's going to stand in the way of those games getting so compelling and so interesting that they do kind of subsume people's lives. And I don't know.
1: Yeah. it just reminds me of that one episode of black mirror, uh, where, you know, you've got this guy who's in this building and all he does is he goes to the treadmill and generates power, I think every day or something. And then he goes back yeah. into his, his room and ultimately he spends, he spends this digital money on digital things to live this like digital life. And it, it kind of feels like that when you, you go into all these games and you pay for all these upgrades and special weapons and special skins and special this, that, uh, where, you know, it, it does feel, it does feel a little bit strange. So anyway, that that's fascinating, Barry. I found something else interesting this week and I know you're pretty happy about it, uh, because it's, <laughs> it's in your the field that you love and that is uh reading and writing um ultimately I, I read another book so so far this year is actually going pretty well i've read two this year um and i know i'd set myself the goal of 12 by the end of the year so let's see if that happens um but but yeah i read i read the book that you recommended it was i think one of your favorite books from last year Barry? correct me if i'm wrong mm-hmm. um yep. and that is uh, eleanor oliphant is completely fine by gail honeyman and uh I have mixed feelings about the book. I'm completely honest. Uh, Ooh, tell me. I think, I think overall, I think overall, I did enjoy it. Overall, I did enjoy it. The first few chapters, I was, I was gripped. I found her humor uh, very witty. I I related to it because of the fact that I do live in London and you know it's got that English vibe to it. Obviously, I'm an accountant, so I kind of related to her on that front. That working at nine to five, uh, you know, she was in bookkeeping, but uh, or she was in invoicing or whatever the case is, whatever she did. Uh, I I kind of relate on on that front, and there, so there was a lot a lot about her that I that I could relate to. But there was a point of it where, you know, she became that what is the word. She became that sort of Hermione Granger, if you'd like. The the know it all. Um, in a way that, that kind of annoyed me a little bit. Until I kind of understood a bit more of a backstory. Uh I mean, of course, a lady who's who's gone through a heck of a lot. I mean, you know, I don't know why I hadn't looked at this cover and seen the flame, the the sort of Uh, the matches and the shape of a house, because, uh, you know, for for a long period of the book, it was getting up to what had happened to her and, you know, the journey that she's gone through. Um, And so there were parts of it that I absolutely loved. Uh, I I really did love when she got to enjoy the the simple things that come with human connection and contact and, uh, you know, being involved in uh, popular culture also so actually going and uh, you know doing her makeup and uh, going into a a fashion store and you know getting kitted out with with some nice looking stuff so so there was certainly a lot of stuff that I I did like about it but like I said those the slightly annoying elements of her personality that know-it-all nature uh did kind of get to me I mean I did I did like the the I did like how you know her journey of loneliness um was spoken about so candidly in it in, in it um and you know of course that that crazy journey of of going to see someone and getting your life on track and having a companion uh who's there to help pull you through it uh but then then the ending Barry, in the last couple of pages um i don't know do do we spoil it do we i suppose it's been out for so long does it doesn't matter yeah right? If you're going to
0: read it, then just don't listen now for the next. (laughs) Don't listen now for
1: the next couple of seconds, (laughs) Uh, where yeah, you you realise that these these conversations she has with her mother every single week are imaginary, Um, and you know that for me was a was a bit of an interesting one, especially right at the end of the book. Uh, I mean, I kind of I kind of closed the book and I was kind of like, okay, and. Um, but, but maybe, maybe I'm wrong and I'm really, really keen to see your, your take on it uh, and why you loved it so much as well. Um, also because I don't read novels, right? So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm coming from a very much, uh, you know, nonfiction, self helpy point of view. So for for me, this is the first novel I've read since leaving school, um, which, which is obviously, you know, obviously interesting.
0: I think, I think what's, what's really fascinating is that you're picking up on some of the meta, the meta meanings of the the story, right. without even realizing it, right? So, so, so that that whole nodal personality is is intentional on the writer's behalf, mm. because what she's yeah. trying to do is she's trying to show the psychological defense mechanisms that Eleanor has built in order to deal with what's happened in her past. Yeah. And so, like, what I really love about the story is that. It, it goes against most novels because it, it isn't filled with action. There aren't car chases and, and yeah, shootouts yeah, and yeah. all crazy That's pieces true. of action. Yeah. It's, it's focused very much on one human being and kind of the life that she's lived. And she's a very average, mediocre person. Mm. She's not some hero that you're she, rooting for. And so I don't think that Gail Honeyman was trying to write a character that was super likable or was super compelling or super charismatic. The, the actual point of the novel is that she wasn't those things. She was a bit annoying. She was a bit frustrating. She was a bit <laughs> yeah. like angsty. But, but, but what, what I, think, I think what the writer is trying to do is, is, is r- make you realize where that came from
1: and yeah. doing it through
0: yeah. the story that she's been told. And so I think, it, I think you're picking up on the things and, and that, that's how you're supposed to feel. Yeah. <laughs> and that's what's so cool about novels is that the writer's trying to make you feel a certain thing to try and make you reflect on on, on, on that story. So I completely agree. If this is the first novel you've written in years, it's not gonna have the sort of the action mm. and that the crazy happy ending and and the very kind of the tropes of a normal story. And that's why I found the contrast so interesting to me is because it goes against a lot of storytelling guidelines. Mm. Um and it can be boring at times because all it's doing is focusing on this one person's life, right? And kind of digging through her psychological background. But in my opinion, there's so much beauty to that because we don't tell stories about mediocre people. And yeah. and that, that I think is something that we should be doing is because... Most of us are going to be mediocre, right? We're not all going to be those superheroes. We're not all going to be the the people who are saving the princess from the from the dragon. It's just not the, not the case, right? And and so many of us do. We never see that sort of relatable personality in a book. If you are someone who is anxious, who is lonely, who is dealing with with psychological struggles. You never see a book about those things because the characters in those books are always strong and they always kind of figure it out, and and that's why I like this book is because it, it gave a, a very subtle and very nuanced um, story about this person who is average, and that's the point. And and she no, she wasn't charismatic. She was she, she was a bit annoying, um, and and that I think is intentional on the writer's behalf. Does does that does it make sense to you?
1: Yeah, I mean I, I love that. I love I love that you I love that you picked out the right thing from my, you know, slightly mixed feelings. But I mean <laughs> don't, don't get me wrong, the you know, the sweet moments were really sweet. Like when she had a moment of connection that she's been closed off to her whole life because of those defense mechanisms, because of those barriers that she's put up. Uh you know, literally not dealing with people at the office, getting in on time, getting out and then spending her weekend uh you know, binging on alcohol to kind of just exist really um when she when she mm-hmm. starts to open up to this idea of raymond who is who is this you know random it guy who's slightly scruffy and <laughs> uh, whatever the case is but when she starts to see some of the kindness uh that he that he you know starts introducing her to in caring for this random old man who uh who collapsed or whatever the case is and becoming a part of that that family and what, all, all of that kind of stuff uh you know those sweet moments were really quite sweet my only question is, why did they not hook up? <laughs>
0: Chad, again, this is not that sort of story, man. I, I, I understand. I understand. Everyone wants that payoff. They want that. Yeah. They want that moments at the end of the story, and and it can be frustrating because that's what you expect <laughs> is going to happen, right? That's what. Yeah. That's how you think it's going to end because we've all been programmed by millions of movies and books and stories that that's how things end. Um, but. the... The fact is that life isn't like that. Life isn't like the stories we we see in films and, and, and in books and whatnot, unfortunately. Um, and so that's why I think that's why I found this, this story so beautiful and so moving is because it was, it was, it was real. It was yeah. like real things didn't turn out the way you thought they were going to turn out. You didn't have this moment where the music's playing in the background, they run at each other in slow motion and they <laughs> kiss in the, in the rain. No, you don't have that moment um, because that's not real. That's not how life is. Life is life is is tough and and complicated, and the story is so much. I don't want to call it depressing, but it's 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 really emotional in a way when you when you kind of watch what this what this woman goes through, and. The way that loneliness shapes her life, the way that her, her background shapes her life, and and you realize that there's no way for her to get out of it. Like she, she makes some small progress, she has some of those moments of sweetness, she has those moments of, of of joy, but there isn't this redemption story that we see in every other story. And and so yeah. it's not for everybody. I'm not saying everyone's going to enjoy this book, but what I what I appreciated about it is that it goes against the the typical stereotypes that that we enjoy because it makes us feel good. Mm but it's not actually relatable. Um, and I think that this, this, these kinds of stories can speak to people who, who are in that position where they don't have that, that fairy tale. They don't have that, that moment. All they're trying to deal with, like you say, is, is going to work and kind of coming back yeah. home. And that's yeah. all they're worried about. Um, and those stories don't get told because they don't get the headlines, right? This, this book is never going to become something on Oprah's book club. It's never going to become a huge mainstream success because it doesn't have that element of it. But that doesn't mean it doesn't have value. And that's why I loved it so much.
1: I disagree with you there, Barry, because I think, although it's not for a lot of people, I think it will, I think it is going to be huge because of the fact that Reese Witherspoon has purchased the rights to make a movie out of it. Um, and so you know obviously when it comes to actually having a film behind it and obviously it's a bestseller as it is at the moment she's done really really well with this book Uh, it's not just you who raved about it I mean I posted it on my Instagram story and I had so many responses from friends of mine who had read it and thoroughly enjoyed it so it's certainly you're certainly not alone Barry and I understand why you love it so much Um, I, I think I think it even though it, it doesn't have that typical payoff, like you say, I still do think it, it will be a big book, um, you know, going forward, especially when it gets turned into a movie. Whether the movie lives up to it, that's another question.
0: Yeah, that's the thing, right? Is, is Are they going to be able to capture that averageness in the movie? Because all the incentives are going to be to kind of exaggerate things and Mm -hmm. to make it more of a more of that typical story arc and so i hope they do it justice um i'm gonna i'm gonna withhold my 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 thoughts until (laughs) i see the movie um but yeah it's exciting to me that that's happening and yeah the more people that can get into the story the better i really do think so i think i honestly think it made me a better person i think it gave Mm -hmm. me perspective into a life of someone who isn't on the front cover of magazines who isn't like dominating everything in their life and it's just trying to survive in a sense it's a story of survival at, at mm. the very least right um, and i think that in our day-to-day lives we can often be a little bit short or a little bit angry or frustrated with people who we don't think are competent or we don't think are, are reaching their potential or they are not like charismatic and in our faces and really kind of grabbing life by the by the horns and i, I just think we don't understand what's going on in those people's lives we don't know the struggles that they are dealing with and we cannot assume that the way we feel about life is the same that someone else feels about life. And that's one of the most beautiful things about fiction is that it allows you to live in the mind of somebody else that you never would have, have a chance to. And it gives you a new perspective on how you should think about life. So when I finished that book, it, it, it changed the way I treated people. It changed the way mm. I treated a car guard or a receptionist or a, 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 a I don't know, like a petrol attendant. because. You just don't, you can't assume that because they're in that position that therefore, okay, cool, they're just, that's who they are in a sense. Um, Everybody is just doing what they can to survive, especially in a time like now. It's extremely poignant right now when everyone is just in pure survival mode. There's no talk about superheroes. There's no talk about any of that. Mm -hmm. It's just purely, can we make it through this thing? Um, and so, if there's anyone out there listening who hasn't read this book, I really encourage you to go and read it. I I will stand by it. I think it's an amazing, amazing read, um, and I think that that sort of frustration and annoyance Chad is is the mm. whole point.
1: Okay, love it, love it, Barry. Uh, love everything you got from it. Now that I've understood, uh, now that I've actually gone, I've walked, the, I've walked your shoes, and understood every piece <laughs> of why you loved it so much and why it was your book of uh, of the year. Um, you know, thanks so much for that. I'm mindful of time. It's uh, we're currently an hour sixteen minutes, and uh, we've still got a lot to talk about. What do you think? Is there anything there that you want to you really want to talk about, or or should we should we I- bring it to close?
0: Yeah, I think we should maybe push it to next week. None of them are super time sensitive and it'll be a nice little teaser for everyone to come tune in next week. We've got some amazing things coming up, talking about some deep fakes, talking about a potential malaria vaccine, a whole bunch of cool stuff. And so I think that people are gonna have to come back and tune in for episode 70, Chad. How about that?
1: Absolutely. Well, definitely do come and join us next week. Uh, We always appreciate having you here on the show. As always, I mean, you're currently watching on YouTube, but don't just check us out there. Check us out as well on Twitter. And of course, on Instagram too, where we're at Across the Pondcast. And last but not least, we're on Facebook as well, Across the Pond Podcast. That's all for today. It's been quite the episode, but we'll see you as always next week.